Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Carbon Curve. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about the collective action approach needed to remove billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fend off the worst effects of climate change. Today's episode is sponsored by Carbon Future. Carbon Future is an end-to-end platform for companies who want to participate in removing carbon from the atmosphere. Unlike conventional marketplaces, Carbon Future's monitoring, reporting, and verification platform solves carbon credit uncertainty for buyers like Microsoft and Swiss Re, while Carbon Future's support helps scale the world's most promising carbon removal ventures for real climate impact. You can learn more at carbonfuture.earth. According to ocean climate NGO Ocean Visions, the ocean is under threat from overfishing, plastic pollution, and of course, climate change. But the organization thinks that if managed responsibly, the opportunity to harness the power of the ocean to sequester and store CO2 is massive compared to terrestrial methods. That's why researchers are exploring the carbon removal or CDR potential of this vast resource that covers 70% of our planet's surface. But ocean-based CDR methods are unique and pretty complex, ranging from ocean alkalinity enhancement to sinking seaweed. In addition, the ocean is a dynamic environment. It's difficult to measure the quantity of CO2 removed. It's unclear what impact different ocean-based CDR methods will have on ecosystems. And figuring out the policies and regulations to responsibly pilot, test, and eventually scale up the best solutions is really difficult. This is a field within carbon removal that's gaining a lot of traction precisely because there's so much to learn about what responsible and effective ocean-based CDR at scale looks like. So today, I'm speaking to an entrepreneur committed to enhancing the ocean's potential as a carbon sink while addressing ocean health in the process. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to this podcast at carboncurve.substack.com or through your favorite podcast app. And if you'd like to get in touch, shoot me an email at naeem at carboncurve.co. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Today, my guest is Mike Kellen, co-founder and CEO of Planetary. Planetary's core goal is to add the oceans to our collective climate solutions. Planetary removes carbon from the atmosphere by adding a mild antacid to seawater. This process stores carbon in the natural chemistry of the ocean for 100,000 years while restoring the pH balance of the oceans in a local area. Planetary extracts the pure antacid from rocks left behind by mining operations using renewable energy, producing clean hydrogen and battery metals as byproducts. Ultimately, this system can remove carbon from the atmosphere at less than $75 a ton and can scale into the gigatons per year. Mike and co-founder Brock teamed up with Dr. Greg Rao, a world-leading expert in the ocean carbon cycle in 2019 to found Planetary. Together, they're pushing forward the frontier of ocean carbon removal with a goal to ensure that the oceans are a key player in our work to heal the climate. Mike is based in Ottawa, Canada, and tries to spend every non-working moment outdoors in a canoe with his wife and three kids. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Aim. Nice to be here. Good to have you as well. And tell me a little bit more about the origin story of Planetary and how you all got started. Sure. Well, we started in 2019. And the way that we got started was that uh, Brock and I were searching for a climate business to found. And we were looking for something that was highly scalable, so it could make a climate scale impact and both scalable from the perspective of, you know, energy and resources and things like that, but also scalable in terms of having a viable business model behind it. And we were looking for something also that was not heavily appreciated, I think, within climate solutions. I think one of the challenges 
when you get into this, especially as a newcomer in the space, is like you look at it and say, oh, there's this huge amounts of investment into going into certain types of things, whether it's renewable energy or carbon capture and storage. We wanted something that was, I think, underappreciated and wasn't one of the core uh, focal points so that we could really try to make an impact with entrepreneurship. And so we called a lot of people around the world who were involved in climate in various different ways looking for something like that. And we ended up running into uh, Dr. Greg Rao. And Greg sort of, you know, I think we called him about something different. And he sent us a, one of his papers and said, hey, why don't you look at this? And we were like, wow, this kind of checks all the boxes. It's uh, something that we don't think about much. The oceans helping us with carbon removal from the atmosphere and, you know, big markets that it played into and everything like that. And we said, I think this is the thing we want to bet on. And um, so we, you know, created a company with Greg as as three co-founders and went off and uh, and started in, in 2019. And since then, we've gone through an awful lot of iterations, I would say. Uh, we've learned a, a ton about carbon removal and mining and oceans and electrochemistry and all kinds of stuff like that and uh, are now at the point where I think we're very much ready to um, actively move into, you know, commercialization and, and removing carbon at scale. Yeah. Talking about removing carbon at scale, tell me a little bit more about your specific carbon removal method and, and what makes it unique. Yeah. So the, the method that we have in a way is super simple and the devil's always in the details, of course, right? But like really easy. So we take an antacid like you would have from the drugstore, you know, just you know, like roll aids essentially. And we use under existing permits, we add that into seawater. And that's pretty much it. As we add that antacid into seawater, it does a couple of different things. First of all, it restores ocean chemistry in the local area. So it helps to rebalance the pH of the oceans. Our oceans have been pretty heavily damaged by acidification due to climate change. And, but the more important thing that it does is that the way that it rebalances that acidity is it actually neutralizes CO2. So CO2 is actually an acid. And as it dissolves in seawater, we essentially are neutralizing that, that CO2, turning it into what's called bicarbonate or like baking soda. And that bicarbonate is resident in seawater for roughly 100,000 years. And so you get this effect, which is as we add this antacid, neutralize that CO2, that reduces the amount of CO2 that's in our seawater which forces more CO2 to come out of the atmosphere and dissolve into our oceans. And it sort of creates a little conveyor belt of CO2 from the atmosphere into these massive pools of bicarbonate within ocean chemistry, which is where it stays for about 100,000 years. And so what about the ocean makes it an important medium for carbon removal? The oceans are our largest store of carbon on the Earth's surface. They've got roughly 88% of the carbon on the Earth's surface is in ocean chemistry. And to be really specific about it, that carbon is not in shells or uh, kelp or algae or fish or any of those things, anything bio biological. In fact, that portion of the carbon in our oceans is, is minuscule. It's actually in the chemistry of the seawater itself. So the vast majority of carbon on the Earth's surface, and this includes all of the carbon in the air and all of the carbon sort of on the surface of the Earth on, on land, 
the vast majority of that carbon is actually living in seawater chemistry. And it's a really kind of a unique feature of seawater. So seawater very specifically holds carbon in the form of bicarbonate and carbonates in its chemistry for a very, very long time, sort of long geological cycles. And um, in that way, the ocean is kind of, in some some, some people call it the, the thermostat of the earth. It's kind of like the place that nature actively is going to put any excess carbon over geological timeframes. So, so that sort of unique feature of the ocean makes it an ideal place for us to do very large scale carbon removal. And something about intervening with the ocean for me has always kind of made me feel a little nervous, right? Um, the sure. ocean we kind of think about is that is a you know very kind of delicate ecosystem, despite the fact that it it covers the majority of, of the the Earth's surface. But what are some of the challenges or risks associated with ocean CDR, and how are how are you all thinking about mitigating those risks? It's a really good point, right? So the ocean is really a really important thing to be very careful with. I think at the end of the day, the ocean is something we don't understand as well as we understand the land. We live on land. We're much more comfortable with the land. I think in general, we're, we're sort of terrestrial species. And so land-based approaches tend to be much more comfortable for us. But the ocean is, in, in a way, one of, the, one of the biggest challenges with the ocean is that it's already being damaged by our activities. Essentially, with the ocean and the atmosphere, just to take a step back, the ocean and the atmosphere are kind of like mirrors of each other. And they're always in balance in terms of the concentration of CO2 between the atmosphere and the ocean. So in one sense, you know, we want to sit there and say, hey, let's be careful not to disrupt the ecosystem of the ocean. But I think it's much more realistic to say that we've essentially been dumping CO2 directly in our ocean for the last 200 years. You know, we've essentially used it as the this unrestrained dumping ground for CO2. And, you know, we're, we're at a point now where, unfortunately, we are going to have to do something. Uh, we can't, you know, sort of say, okay, you know, it's, it's like walking into your kid's room and being like, well, you've made a huge mess. Let's just leave that mess and don't make any more. Like, we just can't really do that anymore. So we're at a point now where we have to carefully and with maximal sort of scientific discipline, start to actually clean up the mess we've made in our atmosphere and in our oceans. And that's really something that we're focused on doing. In terms of harms, you know, we sponsor a lot of academic research on biological effects of our form of carbon removal. And there's been a lot of papers done. There's a lot more research happening. There needs to be a lot more research happening. But the way we're approaching it is that as we scale up around the world, we match our scale with the scientific consensus around what is safe. And that's really sort of where we're going with it. And, you know, we've got to scale up significantly. We'd like to get to a gigaton of carbon removal eventually. But um, that scale is going to be done in lockstep with all of this research. I mean, in terms of a billion tons of carbon, it actually sounds like a lot as well. Uh, and it is a lot, you know, it's sort of, you know, I think that the global oil industry does about two to two and a half gigatons of oil every year. So 
you know, one volt gigaton of carbon is a lot of volume stuff. But when it comes to the ocean, the ocean is just so massive that if you were to distribute that addition of a gigaton of carbon through our form of carbon removal across around the, around the world, the actual local scale of addition would be pretty minor. And, you know, to give a sense of scale of the ocean, if you actually even wanted to detect carbon added to the ocean through our process universally across the entire ocean, you would have to add about 37 gigatons of additional carbon in one shot just on a, and, and that's the, that's the minimum you have to add in order to even detect it on the most sensitive equipment we have. And so, um, on the one hand, it's, you know, making sure we're walking in lockstep with the biological research that's happening. And then on the other hand, it is understanding that the scale of the ocean means that making a very minor change in the ocean sense and even just cleaning up the ocean a little bit in terms of the type of carbon that's in there and working with acidification is going to make a much more massive impact on the atmosphere than it will on the ocean. Uh, and so we think that's a very positive thing. Um, just on that point, actually, one of our researchers has a great quote, and I, I love this. This is uh, Doug Wallace at, at Dalhousie, and he said, you know, the most dangerous place for CO2 as far as I'm aware, is in the atmosphere. And so really, and, and that affects our ocean's health and it affects our health and affects the warming of the world and all these kinds of things. So really taking some of that out of the atmosphere, storing it safely as a alkaline substance in seawater is on balance, if, even if it comes down to being a compromise, it's probably better than leaving it in the air. Yeah, and I think thinking about in thinking about the ocean as an open system, right, in this kind of flux with the atmosphere, I think, like you said, it kind of reflects the atmosphere. How does that affect measurement, reporting, and verification for ocean CDR methods like yours in order to kind of minimize some of the uncertainty around how much CO2 is actually removed and stored away permanently? So MRV is one of the hardest parts of dealing with the ocean. Like you say, it's a very large system. You know, you can effectively assume that at the scales we're talking about here, dilution distribution is almost infinite, almost instantaneously as, as anything's added to the ocean. That's a benefit on the safety side. But as you say, on the MRV side, it actually becomes a bit of a challenge. And so for us, the way we think about monitoring, reporting, and verification of carbon within the ocean is that it it needs to be a process that is going to be primarily based on modeling and very, very good science. And so let me take a step maybe back on that and talk a little bit about the timeframes because the timeframes are really important. When we add our antacid into seawater, there's a bunch of things that have to happen or there's, there's a few steps that have to happen. The first thing that has to happen is that that has to dissolve. So when we put our stuff out there, it's got to dissolve first. So that takes on the order of minutes to hours to dissolve. That's kind of how that goes. Then what it has to do, is it has to neutralize CO2 in the seawater that's already there. And so that takes on the order of sort of days to weeks, right? Depending on how fast you're adding it and sort of how much it's distributing in the, in the local area. But then the most important part of it is that that 
seawater, which now has a lower concentration of CO2 in it than the atmosphere, has to flux again, so re-equilibrate. And that CO2 has to come out of the atmosphere and go back into the ocean to replace the CO2 that's been turned into bicarbonate and neutralized. And that can take up to a year and possibly longer. There's a series of things that can happen in that time frame in terms of losses. Uh, one of those losses and the most major loss we worry about is what's called a subduction loss. And so the ocean has kind of easiest way to think about it, layman's terms, is layers of water, right? And these layers of water, some of them, if they sink down low enough, take a really long time to come back to the surface on the order of sometimes up to a thousand years. And so if this now CO2 depleted water subducts down to a lower layer, you essentially on human time scales consider that that is never going to re-equilibrate with, with air, right? It's just not going to happen within the time frame. And so, so those are the kinds of things we really worry about. When it comes to things like permanence and, you know, sort of what we call stoichiometric efficiency or, or the understanding of how much antacid is going to take out how much CO2 and things like that, the science is a lot better proven. Like we kind of know, you know, that this is going to stay permanently stored, right? The science is, is, is like, well, we're pretty clear that it's going to be in there for 100,000 years. We're pretty good on that. We get a sense from modeling the carbonate system, understanding what the ratios are going to look like in terms of antacid to CO2 when it comes down to measuring things like the pH. It's primarily pH driven of, of the local ocean and the area where you're adding the stuff. So all of those things are fairly well understood. So the really big question tends to be around the physical oceanography, that understanding of where is this stuff going to go after it's released in what kind of time frame. And that's what we focus most of our time on. So the good part of that is that there's a lot of really good models out there. There are a lot of great physical oceanographers who can work on improving those models and building those things in that context. Uh, one of the things we've done is developed our own model, our own sort of software library for CO2 flux change based on alkalinity addition, which we can layer on top of industry standard models to do MRV. And so there's a series of different sort of things we can do to reduce the uncertainty around this. And, you know, our approach to it uh, takes into account all of these various things, uses the models to understand where this stuff is going to go, and then applies some very conservative uh, efficiency factors around those models and, and the distribution. And, and how are you kind of operating with, with, you know, folks like Dalhousie University and other kind of researchers that are, that are thinking about this? Yeah, so it, it's absolutely a big part of what we do. And that's a, you know, there's a whole, whole branch of science that we're working with here around MRV, primarily on the carbonate chemistry side of the ocean. So when we look at our alkalinity and how it affects that carbon drawdown within the ocean at a particular site, we actually start with a whole series of laboratory experiments. And those laboratory experiments are looking specifically at the product we're using. Not all alkalinity produced through all different ways of production uh, is the same, right? You know, uh, you've got different uh, reactivity, you've got different grind sizes, you have impurities in this stuff that you have to make sure that you're well within safety limits and permitted limits on. And so we run a whole suite of test work around each individual product that we plan to use. And then with that test work, that sort of rolls into 
the oceanography and distribution at the site to come up with that kind of number, which is, which is gen, generally represented as a ratio. You know, I add this much alkalinity, I'm going to get this much CO2 carbon um, sort of captured out of the air. And so that, that's how we work with that. Dalhousie University uh, is a really important partner of us. And the whole Halifax region is building up to be uh, a central place where a lot of this ocean alkalinity enhancement work is happening. And, uh, you know, a lot of great companies in the region, a lot of great sensor companies, as well as AUVs and things like this. But really, it's it's building out to be a bit of a hub of research around uh, this kind of space and, and what's going on with this stuff. Yeah, I've had a chance to speak to some of the folks that are working on on creating a bit of a research hub around this, like you said, in, in the Halifax area and out of Dalhousie University. And it's, um, it's really exciting to see uh, just kind of all of this innovation being brought to bear in a way that I think can help make, um, you know, this part of Canada a leader in, in carbon dioxide removal. So that's, that's really, really cool. Tell us, tell us about your code of conduct. You, you released this, you know, in 2022 this year. What inspired you to embark on that effort? So code of conduct is to us really, really important part of what we do. You know, this company is focused on really doing something good. In fact, we're trying to do a lot of different things that are good at the end of the day. When you look at our process for producing alkalinity in the first place, for example, where uh, that process remediates toxic mine tailings and extracts, you know, alkalinity or this very pure form of of um, antacid out of that. The process produces hydrogen as a byproduct, which is a clean fuel. The process produces battery metals as a byproduct, which can be help, help with the energy transition. So we're trying to do a lot of things that are good here. On the ocean side of things, you know, I think we have to, if we're going to approach this in a way that is genuine, right, that we're trying to go out there and do something good, we have to approach that with a huge amount of transparency. We have to approach it in collaboration with local communities. We have to approach it in a way that maps to the science that's out there. Because if we don't, then we're really just repeating the way we sort of got ourselves into this mess in the first place, right? So we, we think that that's really, really important. Our code of conduct, I think I call it a starting point. It's something that we've put out there to say, this is how we're going to measure ourselves. This is how we're going to commit. But it's framed in a way that is open to learning and open to growth as we engage with communities and everything like that. And it's something that we plan to back up with a whole series of action plans and transparency and disclosures as we start to initiate projects in this area. You know, the ocean is not ours, right? Well, I don't own the ocean. And and it's a global commons. It's something that we have to engage in together. And I think if we don't engage properly in that, uh, I think quite rightfully, a lot of people will say, well, you know, we don't trust that you will handle the global commons properly and you can't do what you want to do. And so to me, it's, it's a, you know, it's a fundamental authorization is required for what we do here. And the code of conduct is our way of asking for authorization at the end of the day. Yeah, and on, on that point around engaging communities, tell us a little bit more about, you know, what does effective engagement with coastal communities really look like in order to, you know, reduce or 
eliminate any kind of potential harms and and maximize the economic benefits of of ocean CDR and and ocean climate solutions more broadly. Yeah, so I I think there's it's it's a really interesting thing, and you know I'm honestly learning this stuff as I go here because you know I come out of software and tech where you know engagement with communities is kind of the last thing that you think, although it shouldn't be, but it often is. I think for me so far. What we look at in terms of engagement is that we believe that carbon removal in general is going to be a massive, right? If we just, you know, top-down analysis, if you go backwards from the IPCC reports and you say, you look through these models and everything like that, and you say, well, if we need to do roughly 10 billion tons of carbon removal from the atmosphere every year, starting in 2050, and we expect that that price is going to stabilize somewhere around $100 a ton, right? This is a trillion dollar a year market. And to me, you don't, you know, you, when you look at that, that's going to be a lot of opportunity for a lot of people in terms of building out this, this industry. And it's similar to what we've seen with renewable energy. You know, this industry is built up around decarbonization and it's created a huge amount of opportunity for a lot of people. And created a lot of jobs around the world and where it's being deployed and everything like that. I, I think carbon removal can be the same. And I think we can engage on the basis of an economic, you know, opportunity. But we can also engage in terms of, you know, restoration. We can engage in terms of helping people to, you know, help to restore the earth at the end of the day. And if we're doing this right, that should be a big part of what we're able to do. I think when we engage with communities, the biggest thing we have to do is, is understand that we really don't know everything. We might have a lot of scientific knowledge. We might, you know, have done our research around harms. We might sort of, you know, think that we understand all the chemistry and everything like that. But I think we have to also understand that we don't have, uh, necessarily the benefit of the experience in the region. We don't have the benefit of the local understanding. We don't have the benefit of any traditional knowledge. And so we have to approach those conversations, um, you know, with our ears open, right? Like, and our eyes open, not trying to tell people what we're doing or tell people how it should be done, but going in listening and understanding how people approach the ocean and how they approach, you know, sort of, you know, our work in that context. And then finally, what I would say is like, even outside of the direct benefits of this, you know, we have right now, if you look at, you know, 1.5 degrees and things like that as a, as that target, there's massive impacts to the ocean within that. You know, I think roughly 500 million people rely on coral reefs for their livelihoods around the world. And, you know, the, the impacts of two degrees Celsius on coral reefs are devastating. You know, we get up to something like 99% loss. And so when you look at something like this, where science is showing us that, for example, doing this process on a coral reef can actually increase coral resiliency, it can increase coral growth rates uh, through the deacidification of the water in that local area. Um, if we can bring that technology to those areas and to those communities, I think it can be an economic benefit, but it can also be a big social benefit and it can help with ecosystem services you know, sort of more broadly. So 
it's a complicated topic. I think there's a lot to do there. We've just started on the journey. Like, to be totally frank, we've just gotten into this. We're starting to have these conversations with certain coastal communities and areas uh, where we're planning to do projects and things like this. And uh, so far, they've been incredibly positive. We've had huge amounts of of positive feedback on those conversations. And, um, you know, we're looking forward to doing a lot more of that. Yeah, I'm a huge proponent of engaging in those conversations early on. I think it makes a lot of sense to understand those perspectives and approach this work with a sense of humility early in the process, as opposed to kind of an afterthought, which is how some of this is, you know, how some of these well-meaning or well-intentioned projects have been done in the past and I think have really have really harmed other industries. And I think it's it's refreshing to see carbon removal companies trying to put some of that work uh, front end or front load some of that work, you know, early in the process before they get to a scale where it's difficult to reverse course. So I think that mm-hmm. that's great. Thinking about, you know, the broader concerns around scaling up carbon removal through through the ocean and thinking about the ocean as a global commons, you know, what policies or regulations need to be created or updated to basically create more ocean CDR startups like yours? Yeah, so I, I hope that we are a trailblazer in this way. One of the things that I'm hopeful, and I think all startups should aim for this, is to demonstrate the art of the possible and open people's concepts to what is possible within within new spaces and disruptive areas. And ocean CDR is highly disruptive. I, I think that a lot of people don't think about that. When they think about carbon credits or carbon removal or anything like that, they think about growing trees or, you know, if it's in the ocean, you know, growing seaweed and things like this. And so I, I'm hopeful that as we demonstrate this, as we're able to show people that this is possible and that it's possible to do at scale, that that'll be inspirational for people to continue to involve the ocean carbon cycle within, you know, their carbon plans and, and everything that, that's going on here. So it's a, a really untapped area. I think it's an area that has a lot of opportunity to grow. And I think there's a lot of fear that it's too risky or, you know, it's it's too early for the oceans or anything like that. But, you know, frankly, where we are right now in terms of climate, we, we don't have the luxury of time. We can't just wait and say, oh, we'll figure out the oceans later. Like we we have a very short period of time to make a major impact on the climate and the oceans are going to have to be part of it um, one way or another they have to be part of it or we're just not going to make it. So, so I think that, I think that that's going to be good. From a regulatory standpoint, uh, there's a few things that are really critical. Uh, our scale in terms of our individual scale at any particular permit site. Um, and we use, you know, wastewater sites as our, as our, you know, distribution and we go under their permits uh, because they're very well defined for this kind of stuff. You know, alkalinity, alkalinity or antacid is heavily used in wastewater already, so we go under the permits. But the scale is largely dictated by uh, where you take your measurement, right? And so one of the things we look for is what are called mixing zones. And mixing zones are something that is very well defined in a lot of different permitting environments. 
a mixing zone essentially means, you know, rather than measuring this right at the end of the pipe, we're going to measure this at a radius around, around where the outfall happens. And that's where we're going to take our, our measurement from a permit perspective. For us, and even a very small mixing zone will give us exponential increase in scale because the ocean dilutes and, you know, sort of sends things out um, so rapidly. And because of the form of alkalinity that we're using, because it is so mild and sort of, you know, we've chosen a form of antacid that's kind of safe by default, that mixing zone is a very benign thing to, to fundamentally use within the context of what we're doing. So that's something we are working towards. It's something we're talking to regulators about is, you know, for our specific process for, you know, something that is safe by default in the ocean that is, uh, you know, even at, you know, larger scales is unlikely to cause harm. Uh, you know, can we look at sort of mixing zones or expanding mixing zones or using the mixing zones that exist already within, within the legislation of many countries? So that's the biggest thing on the regulatory side for us. Um, everything else is, you know, I think a future thing for us in terms of regulatory. We will need to make sure that rules around using mine waste or, or the waste rock left over from mining uh, is set up in a way that the liabilities are not overwhelming for project developers uh, using our technology, for example. But that's sort of a future deployment uh, thing for us that's, that's going to be required. The regulatory landscape around this seems quite tricky to navigate. And it's not always clear to me, you know, which agencies or departments, whatever jurisdiction you're in, um, you know, owns this, this question around permitting and, and, and just a license to operate. And also to be able to provide the necessary oversight that these sorts of projects are done in a way that's, you know, responsible. I think it's just a really, really thorny issue that, that I think needs to get figured out. But if we're looking ahead, you know, 10 years from now, what does successful scale-up of Ocean CDR look like in your mind? So the, the biggest checkmark that I would have for it is that it is embedded within compliance markets as a viable way to remove carbon from the atmosphere that is creditable. I, I think that's, you know, that's sort of the benchmark we've set for ourselves to say, when we get it into the compliance markets, into major sort of fuels credits or, or emissions trading or naturally defined contributions or things like that, um, that's when I think we will have achieved something really important. Uh, so that, that is, that's a key goal for us. And actually recently at COP27, there was recommended language for Article 6 that did include ocean reservoirs within the global carbon trading uh, mechanisms. And so well, I think we're starting to make progress on that, but I don't think we'll be at a point where it gets embedded within uh, compliance markets until we're at a reasonable scale of deployment and that it's out there and people have seen it to be effective and safe. So that's, that's my big one. That's the big benchmark that I'm going after. In terms of oceans and everything like that, I think that the opportunity is pretty limitless to scale up uh, because the oceans are so vast, because they store so much of our carbon, the, the opportunity for getting to a massive scale is, is virtually limitless. If we distribute it widely enough around the world, uh, we can be doing very small levels of 
you know, CDR at any particular location, but end up with a very large aggregate removal um, where we're sort of well within existing permits, well within, you know, what's known to be safe within the region and all that kind of stuff. And still, like I say, hitting very, very large scales of removal. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, um, that's an inspiring vision for where we'd like to be. And it's, it, it's a bold one in considering kind of the inclusion of Ocean CDR in, in large compliance markets where, you know, the total value of those markets is many fold larger than the voluntary carbon markets that we see today. I think in order for that to happen, we're going to need to see this working at scale. We're going to need to figure out the MRV pieces. We're going to need to understand the ecological impacts. Like there's a lot of things that need to happen between now and 10 years in order for that to work. But but it is it would be a big win for Ocean CDR. Mike, thank you so much for your time. And I want to wish your team all the best in the pioneering work you're doing in leveraging the power of the oceans in helping kind of solve our climate crisis. How do people get in touch with you to learn more about Planetary? Yeah, so obviously we've got our website, planetarytech.com, and very happy to have people shoot us a note as well. So info at planetarytech.com gets to all of the key people, and we're always happy to talk to people about oceans and engagement, uh, code of conduct, mine tailings, hydrogen, all kinds of the fun stuff that we're involved with. So yeah definitely reach out and yeah we'll we'll see you there wonderful mike thanks so much for the time and thank you for being on the show thank you thanks for having me and thanks again to today's sponsor carbon future carbon future is an end-to-end platform for companies who want to participate in removing carbon from the atmosphere unlike conventional marketplaces carbon futures monitoring reporting and verification platform solves carbon credit uncertainty for buyers like microsoft and swiss re while Carbon Future's support helps scale the world's most promising carbon removal ventures for real climate impact. You can learn more at carbonfuture.earth.